Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 2 of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Dr. Elise Fulbright. Elise is an ordained elder and currently serves as a conference superintendent in the Indiana Annual Conference. I gotta say, Elise's story reminds me of why I have remained a United Methodist. In this episode, Elise and I discuss her experiences growing up in the CME denomination, her early years as a single mother and accounting professional, and how she found her place in a United Methodist congregation in Texas. We talk about the female clergy who nurtured her as she discovered her call to ministry. And we talk about her journey into conference leadership, particularly in Indiana, and how she has navigated these last few years of disruption. I'm not only inspired by Elise's story, but it helps me think about the kind of church that we are becoming. I think Elise's story is one that we should all take with us as we prepare for General Conference in 2024. So friends, grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really exceptional interview with Reverend Dr. Elise Fulbright. Reverend Dr. Elise Fulbright, how are you doing today? It is well with my soul, Derek Scott Third. How are you today? <laughs> I am great, and I'm so looking forward to having a conversation with you. It is, um, I, I'm just really excited to have you on the podcast. I uh, remember meeting you. We were both a part of uh, Texas Methodist Foundation uh, project called the New Wesleyan Ecosystem, and we got to spend a few minutes together during a breakout once, and I just... Um, I just remember being so like impressed and like, who is this? Who is this person coming out of Indiana? Um, and so when, then we've been able to do some other work together. And one of the things I really appreciate about you, Doc, is that you are you might be the most organized human being I know in United Methodism. <laughs> and I need to I need to learn from you, learn your ways. Um, but beyond that, I, I, you know, in, in the different conversations that we've had, I know little bits of your story, and so I'm just excited to hear a little bit more of that, and just to get some of your greatness in this space. So, um, I'd love to just start at the beginning. Um, how Elise became a United Methodist Christian, God's provenient grace working in your life and bringing you into our church. So wherever you want to start us at. Indeed, indeed. So let me just also um, share some accolades because, you know, I've been fanning on you for uh, many years when we were in Vegas and not doing Vegas things. We were actually there for United (laughs) Methodist Conference eons ago where you gave a profound and it still resonates with me um, speech about how you are unapologetically late. 
Yeah. And I have used that video in every aspect of training around this understanding of call because we have to deconstruct and reconstruct a new understanding of call, not only in these current times, but to assume that only those who are called are called to preach is not giving a true witness to the gospel message. So I've been planning for a while. So thank you. Oh, God. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you for that. Um, Whoa, we're okay. We have already dove it in. (laughs) But that wasn't the question you asked. So I needed to to lift up and offer flowers where flowers are due. So thank you for your witness, particularly in the call of laypersons, because there are many more who need to hear that to not feel the pressure of following a process that doesn't fit with where God is leading them. So. Um, And so for me, where God led me into the United Methodist Church is quite interesting because I grew up CME in Tulsa, Oklahoma, had always been in the church, went off to college, did the whole college thing, um, became many things from Baptist to Pentecostal to apostolic to non-denominational and all the things. Yeah. Uh, In college, I... um, Ended up pregnant uh, with my son. So um, after graduating from college, found myself in Dallas, Texas, living my best life. But knowing that as a a young, unpartnered mother with a small child, I needed a firm faith foundation for my son at that time. And so I encountered a United Methodist pastor who was female. Now, in all of my faith traditions, females couldn't do that. So I was really intrigued by this particular United Methodist female pastor, Reverend Dr. Sharon Patterson. She was sassy. She was fierce. She was diva, but yet continuing to uphold her divineness in call. And so I was really intrigued um, by her witness and her message. So I started attending Jubilee United Methodist Church uh, in Duncanville, Texas at that time. And there I found my village. I found my people that they they wrapped me in their loving care, took on my son as a son of their own, And it was there that I became a United Methodist Christian. One, being able to discover that females are called and are equally equipped uh, Mm -hmm. to lead in the pastoral ministry and under the leadership of Reverend Dr. Sharon C. Patterson, I became aware more fully of how females can lead fiercely, how females uh, can be able to live out their truth and not necessarily needing to adhere to any other prototype stereotypes. And it was just wonderful. So as a lay person, uh, she put me to work. <laughs> I was as, serving. As, <laughs> as y'all do, as the clergy does. <laughs> we do, right? Uh, so I began uh, serving alongside her spouse at the time. And I began, um, we were co-partners in the youth ministry. And then I became the United Women of, well, now United Women of Faith, but United Methodist Women's president at a young age. And so I was loving the United Methodist Church because the United Methodist Church was a place that didn't shame me or shun me because I was not married and had a small child, but they welcomed me in, which is our theology in and of itself. Yeah. Welcomed me in, 
celebrated me, nurtured me in the faith, elevated me in my leadership. And it was there at Jubilee under another female, uh, Reverend Dr. Lucretia Faison, that I acknowledged my call to ministry in 2001. So it was the women, the women. <laughs> Come on. Oh, man. <laughs> I have so many questions, um, but also just um, so grateful for the witness of these female pastors and their impact on you. And also that, that congregation Jubilee and, and the ways that it embodied grace in this like real tangible way for you and your son. Um, I, so I'll ask, I'll ask this question, um, being raised in the CME, Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. Yes. Were there, um, were there seeds that you got growing up that then sort of like sprouted, if you will, when you landed at Jubilee? Um, just thinking about just the ways that even like our rearing are, are the ways that we are raised, like um, some, you know, it, it, train up a child in the way they should go and they will not depart from it, that, that text, right? Like, and just wondering like what stuff might've been placed in you from that space that, that still sort of, that stays with you or sort of came alive as you found your place at Jubilee. I remember more profoundly at age 10, uh, I was attending a Bible study with my parents. And age 10, the last thing I wanted to do was be in a Bible study on a Wednesday with my parents. But nevertheless, I there I was. <laughs> and so I was, I remember vividly, I was half listening, but then coloring and piddling as, as most young people would do. But it was at the conclusion of that particular Bible study that the pastor at the time, he gathered everyone around in a prayer circle. And I became, I just became overwhelmed and started crying uncontrollably. And many would discount that as, oh, a 10 year old trying to gain attention. But it wasn't that that time. <laughs> it was really the movement of God in such a way that I did not have words for it did not have words for it, didn't know what the experience was. I mean, now in one more seasonedness of life, I know what it was. But at that time at 10, no one even offered the opportunity to consider, have you considered ministry as a vocation? Have you even thought about God's tug at your heart? There was none of those seeds planted, but I remember vividly um, that experience at 10 and then a Sunday after the pastor presented me in front of the congregation, Hosey Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a Bible. But there was still no rearing, no nurturing about any of it. It was just like, okay, she didn't have a spiritual experience, so here's a Bible. And mm. I didn't know what to do with it. And so if I was to be able to speak to my 10-year-old self, what I had wished was there was someone from that congregation that saw God's working to be able to say that child there has something on her life. We can't mm. necessarily know what it is right now, but maybe we need to start nurturing that. And I think unintentionally they did because like I was the director of the youth choir. I was teaching VBS. I mean, so I was doing all of the things, but it wasn't an intentional nurturing or yeah. in an intentional faith formation conversation that would bring me about to discover that God is doing a, a work in me, not to be afraid, not, 
not to run from it, but to live into it and continue to see it evolve. I appreciate you uh, taking me back there um, as it relates to um, how, you know, what what you were doing at Jubilee. Um, And I'm still just, uh, I am so grateful for the leadership of those pastors. So I'm curious what your pastors said to you over those years as a layperson serving um, you know, in these different roles? Like what, what were some of the words that they spoke to you? What was the intentionality that they brought to your life um, in that season? Yeah. So I think presenting opportunities for the leadership. So there was never words, particularly with Dr. Patterson and Dr. Faison, there were never words, there were always opportunities. And when I found myself present being offered the opportunity, I would be stretched in my ability to lead. Additionally, I was equally invested in faith formation discipleship for myself. So I was there on Wednesday nights. I was there on Sundays. Like every time the door was open, I was there, prayer visuals, all of that. And I began to notice a new work in me. Um, and that was... Was I at that time? I was like 24, 25 uh, at that time. And so it was beautiful that when the events of 9 11 happened, I was mm. sensing that God was calling me into pastoral leadership, but I was fighting it because I was on a path of accounting. That's what I was going to do. That's what I knew I was going to do from high school. That was the path I was, that was the trajectory of work I was doing, moving up the corporate ladder. But it was the events of 9-11 that captured my attention in a way that I cannot explain. And it's so interesting because Dr. Faison, she called me out of the blue and said, in my time of prayer, I believe God is calling you to ministry. I started crying unconsolably and I hung up on her because I was like, we're not doing this. We're just not doing this. (laughs) We're not doing this. Being able to serve in ministry as a lay person, that's great because that's what everybody does. But to be able to go to that next level of discernment, um, to really be able to know that the spirit is stirring within and it's affirmed verbally through my pastoral leader that was a whole nother kooky that I wasn't ready for. (laughs) And so so I just sat with it. And I remember so vividly 30 days of darkness where I was existing, but not living because there was this tension and this fighting of, I didn't want to let go of, of the path of becoming CEO or some president executive of a corporation, because that's what I had always had my heart set on to to this unknown of ministry, am I equipped? Am I able? Mm. Am I competent? Am I capable? All the things. Um, And then finally on September the 30th of 2001, I stood before Jubilee, my village, the people who nurtured me in my faith, where I said, here I am, Lord, send me. Mm. And Mm. it was just, Jubilee holds a special place in my heart. It just does. Oh my. Okay. September 30, 2001. You stand mm-hmm. in front of Jubilee. Yeah. And you acknowledge there's a there's a call on your life that is not just about accounting. Yeah. And yeah. not only about serving 
in a local church, but it is about a specific role, specific leadership. Yes. A pastoral call. Absolutely. So what happened on October 1st? What the heck did I just do? That is so interesting because in the various where uh, where I was working in accounting industry, like I was leading Bible studies at lunches and I was praying for people unbeknownst of what God was doing and stirring already. So these are just things that I felt led to do. So I was leading Bible studies in the cafeteria with colleagues and those that were curious. So I was doing those types of things anyway. So it was just an affirmation of that which was already taking place. It really was. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, in the North Texas Conference, uh, declaring my candidacy and going through that particular process, being linked up with mentors through the candidacy process, and then entering into seminary, holy cow, where I was still working full time, rearing my son full time, engaged in ministry, um, still at the same level. And when I think back on that self, I'm like, what the? Blanky, blank, oh, were you thinking? Yeah. Self-care was not at the top priority. So that that's a whole nother podcast. Don't mm. do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Man. So, yeah. So I entered into Bright Divinity School on the campus of Texas Christian uh, University, where some of my regrets of the experience was I was there to check it off the list because I needed to have seminary done so that I can move forward in the process. And while I am grateful for the relationships that I built, I really didn't have the same seminary experience that many who are there who linger and have that type of learning. No, I was there to learn, do what I needed to do so that I could graduate. That, that was my path. Um. Yeah. I'll ask this question in this way. Um, how was your son impacted by watching his mom, not just embrace her call, but do the things that had to be done to be faithful to that call? What what was your sense of 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 his experience through through these years? I think because I had him so young, and every point of milestone that I've celebrated in life, he's been there. So I had him in undergrad. So he was going to class with me. So he was there when I graduated undergrad. And so mm. going to seminary classes, he just said, I mean, we just had a routine. You sit there, you color, you put your head down, but you don't make a noise. I mean, we had a clear understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so every degree that I have accomplished, thanks be to God, he has been there every step of the way. And so they should have given him an honorary every step of the way from the accounting degree to the MDiv to the doctorate of ministry. Like he's been there every in the classroom, coming alongside, understanding the sacrifices that if I'm there at his, at his football or basketball games, I'm sitting there reading. While I'm there present, I wasn't there fully, but I was there. And I made a commitment to be there. And so, yeah, and him and his 27-year-old self now, he's my best friend. And we joke about it all the time. Um, but we would sit at the table studying together, him doing his homework, me doing mine. So 
that's how we grew up together. It's always been us. <laughs> that resonates. I mean, um, many, many nights spent with my mother uh, doing church work and then getting from school and and work and 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 I definitely understand uh, those agreements about here is what we're doing in this space. We, I, we, I, we understand. <laughs> I, I, I felt that. Yep. Yep. Well, what a gift. So as you you know get through um, seminary, what was what was that? What was the experience going forward? Like how I, you started in the North Texas Conference, mm -hmm. um, and yeah. and what were those first few years of being under appointment like? So let's start about the appointment. So I'm still working in the accounting industry at that time. I was the assistant controller for the United Way of Metropolitan Dallas. And it's so interesting because I'll never forget May the 16th, uh, the superintendent calls and said, hey, we have an appointment for you. The appointment is um, in a rural part of Texas, East Texas, where you will be campus minister and associate pastor and a cross-racial, cross-cultural appointment. And you'll have to live in a parsonage. I said, wait, what? <laughs> And then he told me what the pay was, which was $40,000 less than what I was making in my accounting job, that part. So the accounting mind, the, the math wasn't mathing for me at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, so I get off the phone. I said, well, let me pray. Let me pray about that as if I had an option in this appointment process. <laughs> I said, let me pray about this and I will give you a call back. Also on that day, May the 16th. United Way came to me offering me a promotion on the same day with more money. So it really was this, holy cow, what am I to do? And it was a hard moment and a greater tension, but I mm. had to continue to live into the God who calls is faithful. And yeah. so while it was hard to let go of everything that I knew from 10th grade of where I was going trajectory wise and the money mm -hmm. <laughs> to mm -hmm. let go and truly live into this life of faith more deeply to go to a place that I didn't know anyone where Walmart was the only amenity to a cross-racial, cross-cultural appointment to do campus ministry for which I had no context or even any any experience or exposure around to go live at a parsonage and make $40,000 less with my son. Yeah. <laughs> but yet I called the superintendent back and I said, okay, here we go. And so we moved to Commerce, Texas. <laughs> I, I'm sorry that I don't know exactly where Commerce is. You won't. Apologies. <laughs> Apologies to those who are there. <laughs> but the beauty of Commerce Texas, even in a cross-racial, cross-cultural appointment, even in the aspect of being campus minister, I learned how to be pastor. I learned mm -hmm. how to be pastor to people who didn't look like me. I learned how to perfect the craft of preaching formerly from a black church experience going into a dominant culture experience where it's not about the hooping and the hollering, you better need to say something and it connects mm. with the head and the heart. 
and getting the opportunity to be campus minister to a population of young people that were experiencing some of the same things that I had experienced when I had my son and didn't have anyone as a community of care, but I get the opportunity to be there for them when they're making those life decisions and offer caution and also inspiration. Oh my holy word, like that was life for three and a half years. It was life. It was hard, but it was life. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, in the campus ministry piece, uh, yeah, that that's that definitely resonates with me on on some deep, deep levels. Um, I'm I'm curious. Did you stay in touch with those female pastors that um, sort of pulled you into United Methodism, or did you as you were? Oh, going absolutely. Through, those yeah. are my sages. Like I, yeah. they're on speed dial right now. I hang out with mm. them regularly. Like those are my aces. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And interesting enough, when you talked about you and I were on the um, the ecosystem with TMF, uh, with mm -hmm. Lisa Greenwood, Lisa Greenwood, Lisa Greenwood and I served alongside. So she was the senior pastor in commerce. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Okay, I get it now. I get it. She was the senior pastor in commerce when I came on as the associate, and I enjoyed doing ministry with her. And it was it was just a joy. It was a joy. She was one who allowed me to be free, but and she allowed me to fail forward. But yet she was mm -hmm. there to kind of reel me in when I was becoming too much of myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yet. Um, she was a great teacher leader. She really, really was. And I am mm -hmm. deeply uh, grateful. Another female pastor. I mean, hello. <laughs> Another female pastor along the path. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So, so you, if, and I may not have the biography correct, but did you move pretty quickly to conference leadership? I did. I was there at local church three and a half years. And then Bishop uh, Bledsoe at the time, who was serving in the North Texas Conference, invited me into conference uh, leadership as the associate director for the Center of Leadership Development as that center was taking root. Um, and so I served alongside um, Reverend Dr. Keith uh, Boone. And uh, we were developing this emphasis of leadership development across the um, North Texas Conference. And I did that for three and a half years, um, where then I was sensing God was calling me to something more. I knew it was not back to the local church. And oftentimes people assume that because you're in extension ministry, serving on conference staff, you don't have the same interaction with the local church. But I was preaching in a local church at least two to three times a month, still engaged in various groups and circles around teaching, around leadership development and those types of things. So I was deeply involved in the local context of ministry. But I just knew that the pastoral leadership in that capacity was not what I believed that God was calling me to. And so there was this okay, so what, what are we about to do? What are, what are we about to do? And the beauty of God and God's providence is six months before I moved to Indiana, a team from Indiana was discerning that they wanted to start a leadership development emphasis. 
And so in the SCJ, the South Central Jurisdiction, they had what it was called Bishop's Week. And I had the opportunity to speak about my passion for leadership development on the platform at Bishop's Week. And these uh, persons from Indiana heard me, Bishop Mike Corner, God rest his soul, was there. And then um, was then invited to be the inaugural director of leadership development for the Indiana Conference in 2014. With your son coming with you. At that point in time, he had graduated high school, so he was going off to college. And so it was a good point for us. And again, God and God's providence, it's he was going off to school. And so I was going to be dealing with empty nesting and not knowing what that was, because, again, we grew up together. And I'm like, what do I do without my baby? (laughs) And so being uh, uprooted uh, and going to Indiana and. a place where I didn't even know where Indiana was. So let me just really be honest. I had to Google mm. where Indiana was. I was like, where is it on the map in, in, in the United States? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I yeah. knew no one here, but yet I felt deeply that I needed to respond to this call um, to be here in Indiana. Would have never imagined Indiana. The snow, are you? <laughs> I mean, yes, I can imagine, but we already had that conversation. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So what's, how are things in the Indiana conference for you that you've, you've, you've now moved into being a district superintendent in that space? Um, How, how, how has it been? How have these last few years been for you? Yeah, so I came into the superintendency in 2018, and um, it's interesting. So the first district that Bishop Trimble uh, assigned me to was a rural part of Indiana, which is great because I had the context of rural part of Texas to be able to lean towards on how to do ministry in that rural part. I was only there for nine months and then the opportunity to come to the central district, which is Indianapolis proper and many parts around it, more central Indiana, which is great because that just fits with kind of my ministry, my calling and my life experiences and exposures. And so it was great. And then 2020 happened, all of 2020 between the pandemic and the social unrest um, and with all of the complexities of what it meant to be church, I took on another district. (laughs) So serving two districts that are not even the same at all. So it's the Mm. West District, rural, county seat, persons who when I show up, they're looking at me like, are you the help? No, I don't have to be the superintendent. And being mindful of uh, many places where I cannot be at night. So when they are wanting to have a meeting with me, I cannot for my own safety um, be there. I can't. Mm. Um, And so it has been quite interesting serving during this time, serving the church during this time. It's just been quite interesting from the political unrest to the social unrest to our own drama within the United Methodist Church. Um, it has been quite interesting. And this last season of disaffiliations has been one for the record books, my Lord. <laughs> mm. My Lord. Because okay. it, it, 
a lot of it had nothing to do with separating themselves from the United Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. A lot of it had to do with fear, fear of the mm-hmm. unknown and power and control. That is my personal opinion and assessment. Yeah. And well, God bless them that have chosen differently. God bless them yeah. in their ministry and their service for God and God's kingdom. Um, but I would just really be curious of the root cause. Yeah. I want to ask some additional questions about that in a mm-hmm. second. Um, where have you, what is, what has kept you going? Like what serving these two very different districts that we're not just talking about, um, uh, you know, different ministry contexts, but we're talking also about different social contexts that impact you directly as a human being, as a black woman, where, where, where's strength for you? Where do you draw strength in leading in that space? Mm-hmm. Well, just my daily practices of prayer, meditation, working out is key. So mm-hmm. I have to work out at least 30 minutes a day for the sake of everyone, just everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> my mental and physical, not just for the physical, but it's also mental. Um, mm-hmm. And then just the regular practice of prayer. I have a dynamic covenant group of uh, persons that we meet via Zoom and meet up regularly. And then, of course, my son, he and I talk almost every day. Uh, that's key and essential. I have biannual appointments with myself to places that are sun, sand, and blue water. And those mm-hmm. are um, absolutes, non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what keeps me going. But more importantly, it's about the, the call. It really is. Where God really has called me to equip, encourage, and empower all people to live on purpose and live out of their God-givenness. And so when I have the opportunity each and every day, even across the different variables of what these districts are, I get the opportunity to equip, encourage, and empower all persons. Wow. Let's take a quick break. So Elise, um, I ask my guest often um, in these interviews to sort of talk about the impact of the passage of the traditional plan, um, you know, in in their context of ministry and and some, you know, even broader than that. And part of the reason I ask is because I just feel like um, that special session in 2019 is a historical marker for our church. Um, it catalyzed so many things from from my perception and perspective. Um, and so, as a district superintendent, were were you at were you at General Conference twenty nineteen? No. Okay. No, um, but was live streaming like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, district superintendent at that time, were you were you in the the just more the rural district. district? No, the just one district. central district. Mm-hmm. Just the central district, okay. What was leadership like for you um, after the passage of the traditional plan? Mm-hmm. 
So even with the central district being, um, you know, uh, Indianapolis being a large uh, city, but there are other large um, cities around Indianapolis for which the central mm-hmm. district encompasses. And so there was just this vast difference and me needing to lead from the middle because there were several congregations, large in membership, were celebrating the passage of the traditionalist plan. And then we had those congregations that were lamenting the passage of the traditionalist plan. And so me as superintendent of all, needing to be able to offer a witness of hope for all from those that are lamenting and those that are celebrating of how do we come together that regardless of where you are in this, how do we move the mission forward? Understanding that there are implications from its passage that is hurtful and harmful for many. And, but how do we not stay there as a point of victory and resting on our laurels? So mm-hmm. my intention at that point in time was to speak the truth and the facts of what it was and what it was not, because there were so many myths and misinformation circulating, being able to stay true to the facts, but also helping us to remain focused on the mission. It has to always be about the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's what I held true in 2019. That's what I hold true even now, that even now we have those that are um, fearful of what GC20, the GC that will convene in 24 will um, be its outcome, not knowing what the outcome will be. None of us knows. Um, But yet still wanting to remain United Methodist. And I was just in a meeting last night with a congregation where they said, if the if the language and the discipline changes, I can no longer be United Methodist. And I said, so help me understand further what this means for you. I said this one matter that we're dealing with circumvents everything you know to be true about what it means to be United Methodist from our Wesleyan doctrine and heritage, from our open table, from the ways in which we have impact around the world in global missions. All of that is circumvented simply because language has changed for all to be welcome. And it was awkward silence. And I wasn't doing it to debate. I was simply help me understand because that's the only way I can lead is from my learning. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, um, that particular person got flustered thinking that I was trying to combat, which was not the, the nature or even the spirit in which I asked the question. But I ask these questions oftentimes because I think that people have rehearsed these responses so much in their echo chambers that they have not given thought themselves for what that means. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to continue to ask the question. So help me understand everything you know about United Methodism will change simply because language around this matter of human sexuality changes. Everything, Mm. everything. Mm. You've Mm. been a Methodist from the cradle. So everything you know changes simply because more people will be able to be seen, heard, known, and loved. Mm. That's what you're telling me. It's quite interesting. Wow. So, So I'm curious, you, you know, when when the traditional plan passed, the the individuals and congregations that found themselves, um, quote unquote, on the progressive side 
of the church. Um, I don't know if this is true in Indiana, but I know that in Florida, some were pondering like, are we are we gonna leave? Are we are we gonna head out? And and I wonder, was it a similar conversation for them at that time? Of I mean, and obviously things changed around those the annual conference season across the U.S. church. So, um, but I just I'm wondering like what 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 leadership did you provide to those congregations who were, were not excited about the traditional plan passing? Right, one of our largest congregations uh, made a declaration that they were withholding apportionments because of the actions of GC. The largest congregation in Ooh. the conference that so happens to be in Central District makes this public <laughs> declaration that then has a ripple effect of others who have the same understanding. So then we're not even dealing with just the political aspect of what the traditionalist plans passing was. It's starting to become a stewardship matter for the annual yeah. conference as a whole. And holy cow, here I am is leader in this. <laughs> you can holy see yes. the PL. <laughs> you can see the PL <laughs> of what is that? Yes. Oh <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. So it comes back to for me, it always comes back down to relationship. So it did nothing for me to do a counter statement about, oh, this is wrong. Absolutely not. That's just pointless and it's a waste of words. So it took me going back to the relationships. Let me go back to these congregations, sit down with their leaders. How do we have a point of agreement in any way, shape, form or fashion for us to move forward? And then it came down to being able to say, okay, so this is what passed, but this is what it means. And this is what it means for you. And this is an opportunity in 2020, we thought, for perhaps a new iteration or something to be modified regarding it. So being able to sit down, to have sensible conversations, to have agreements and understandings for how to move forward is what brought that large church back into the realization of their impact and the statement's impact and the ripple effect thereof mm. um, to be able to say, okay, we will continue to pay our apportionments. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Um, and so when that became much more known, then of course the ripple effect, well, if they, okay, we can and we're real, we will be okay. But mm -hmm. as with any leadership, it comes back down to the relationship. So combating each other with statements upon statements is just a waste of words. Let's sit down at the table and let's look eyeball to eyeball and let's come to an understanding of how we can move forward. That's what it's, I feel that that's what it's going to take even if the general conference that convenes in 24 does not lend the results that many are hoping for. It still comes back to, okay, so what do we need to do to move forward? And I know that there are many is we've been moving forward for 60 years and I get it with the hurt, harm and all that. And then there are those that's like, oh, well, we need to retain our whatever. Mm -hmm. The way in which church, capital church is right now is not a good witness when we're only continuing to fight each other. Mm. And I can understand why people are like, mm, church is not for me. I'm spiritual, but not religious. <laughs> because all y'all do is fight about what you're against. 
you don't celebrate what you're for. And Mm -hmm. I got enough of that in life. So now we're good. Me and my friends, we're going to brunch and we're going to look at scripture, but we're not going to do church. We're just not. So annual conference season, right after GC19 comes around and you're elected to the delegation. Mm -hmm. I know in many conferences, there was a clear reaction to the passing of the traditional plan um, that looked like who was elected to the delegations, but also some statements um, resolutions passed. Um, what was it like at Indiana's annual conference? There, um, at the passing, there was um, a clergy person. He and others began forming this group of persons who wanted to ensure that there could be a change in the United Methodist Church. So they began to form this group called Room for All. And from that Room for All group, uh, they were intentional about vetting, encouraging, and celebrating candidates who had the centrist progressive mindset at the time. Um, And so that organizing yielded many from the clergy side to be of that same understanding of centrist progressive. It also yielded opportunities from the lay side, a good percentage of the lay side as well. So it was a statement um, to say, what passed at GC19 is not the hope-filled United Methodist Church that we would want moving forward. And so we want delegates who would be able to have voice and vote to potentially vote on a church that we can all live in. And if we're really gonna be about the big tent, where all indeed are welcome, then there has to be um, a greater understanding of who persons are, who God is, and how God calls. Mm -hmm. So from there, all the things happen, right? We get we get the word about the protocol, um, and then COVID. Uh, not going to have GC in twenty, and then we're not going to have it in twenty one, and and then we're not going to have it in twenty two, and the launch of the GMC. All of these things happen. What? What has stayed with you from that? I don't want to call it an era, but it feels like it was its own era of ministry in the age of COVID, which is the also the beginnings of the fracturing of our denomination in real time. What has stayed with you from those few years, those two, three years, trying to navigate all of these issues all at once. Yeah. I think what stayed with me then and continues to stay with me now is the genesis of why I became a United Methodist Christian was that I found community. I found authentic community 
I encountered Christ and I wanted to be a part of it for Jubilee. Even in that particular era, in all of the complexities there was, I found that in local context of ministry, there were authentic communities arising and people were encountering Christ in new and different ways and they wanted to be a part of it. And I believe that is what will sustain us if we can truly be authentic communities that invites people in to encounter a transformative uh, um, encounter with Christ. And they will want to be a part of it. They will want to lend their skills, gifts, and abilities and God's graces to the work of ministry and impact. But if all we're always doing is fighting and talking about what we're fighting about, that is not authentic community. It's just not. And it has nothing to do with Jesus <laughs> at all. <laughs> So what grounds me always is authentic community, transformative encounter with Christ, and people will lend themselves to it in all aspects, even financially. Mm. Mm. So you were in the midst of all of this also, and give me the right words here, being encouraged or discerning a leaning towards um, being the Episcopal candidate for your conference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us to the degree that you want to share. Um, how how did we how did you get there? Like how what was that what was that road? You know, it's about like the call to ministry. It's like, what is going on? I would have never imagined, would have never said, I want to be a bishop ever. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I, I, I get that. I get that. Ever. Um, and so with... Um, being elected a delegate in, at the annual conference session in 2019 and going through the process of discernment, there was something rising within me that I wanted to offer myself to the greater leadership of the church. And I couldn't deny it. I couldn't just say, eh. And it wasn't anything aspirational. It had everything to do with God and God's calling. And so I began to have conversations with my sages um, and what they uh, felt and saw um, and their encouragement um, then went through the delegations process of discernment um, for which then I was endorsed as uh, the candidate from Indiana. Uh, and so continued to move in and throughout the process when we finally <laughs> was able to have elections last November. So mm -hmm. it was like a three and a half year process, almost two and a half year process where, okay, it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, okay, so how do I ground myself in, well, do I, do I, what, what do I do? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so when it finally looked like um, in 2022 that we were going to be uh, able to have elections across the church uh, in the U.S., across the church in the U.S., um, I, I gathered a team around me, um, which I call a call team. And mm -hmm. they were good in encouraging me and helping in preparing me uh, through the jurisdictional process. 
um, that led to um, me openly declaring that um, I feel called to offer myself to the greater leadership of the church, the United Methodist Church. Yeah, so, yeah. And so we went through that process. The election happened and it came down to the last ballot, 34 um, uh, votes um, from that differentiated me from um, the one who was elected. So it was a little disappointing, not in the discernment, um, mm -hmm. but just, okay, so what do I do with this now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I, I did, I, I, I wanted to ask you that question with incredible amounts of like, just mercy and just realizing like, and I have other colleagues and friends who have been down similar roads of, mm -hmm. you know, you, you do all of this work to meet as many people in your jurisdiction and to talk about your life, your call, they're asking you every question as if you already know what it means to be a bishop. <laughs> and, and, and we, 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 I expect you to answer it like you're already a bishop. <laughs> and if you don't, I'm like, well then why should I? <laughs> and you, so you go through this entire process and, 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 and even in the SEJ, there was definitely some, um, we, 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 have, we have work to do around how we engage that process, particularly around candidates of color um, specifically. But what I'm knowing that you were not elected bishop, how how have you walked down that mountain? Mm -hmm. Right. So there was a period of time where I just had to go back into prayer and like, okay, God, I I believe that I heard you, and it wasn't that I didn't. Um, I did. I, I was obedient and offering myself. It didn't yield the outcome that I desired, but yet I still did what I felt called to do. Um, and relying on covenant group and healing through the disappointment to where the beauty of all of it is that I still feel no less called. Uh, and I have been given opportunities from that to lead the church at large in ways that I would have never imagined. So being mm -hmm. able to serve on the Episcopacy committee and lead as a co-chair of one of the uh, task teams, being mm -hmm. able to serve on the general, uh, the commission on general conference and being a part of a think tank with you. Like mm -hmm. these are leadership opportunities that I would have never had opportunity to be able to have. And it is exposing me to the greater aspect of the church that I, I had blind spots about. Mm -hmm. So I count it all joy. Honestly, I say it wholeheartedly. I count it all joy right now because of the insights, the experiences and the exposures that I have been able to have since November of 2022. That is only, I believe, going to um, expand as we lean into the general conference that will convene in 2024. Mm. So, so good, so good. Yeah. So we are scheduled to 
meet in Charlotte, North Carolina, and prayers and fingers crossed, right? In Jesus name, yes. Um, and we just do it, please. Oh, please. Um, Elise, what does General Conference 2020 that will meet in April, May 2024, if you got to set the agenda, what does GC24 need to be about? Yeah. I think it's some of the things that we have talked about in our think tank um, opportunity is how do we come together not to fight, but truly move forward the United Methodist Church? How do we come together with a unity of mind, not a uniformity of mind, but a unity of mind that this really is offering ourselves to the greater movement of the United Methodist Church. How can we truly come together, all persons who are delegates from across the globe to say, what is the best for the United Methodist Church? Not my personal agendas, not, but understanding the relevancy if, if we are going to continue as a movement across the entire world, how can we set up an organization that is relevant, that is really about the gospel message? And if we all came with that mindset, then I think that we really could pass some legislation that moves us forward. Yeah. I really, really believe that. Mm. How do we make connections, even with those who have differing opinions and understandings, but still come to, you may be different in this understanding, but could we come together to say that while you may not align with you could see that this action will create a relevancy for the United Methodist Church. Mm. So that persons who have felt shamed and shunned will now truly feel welcome. Welcome in their personhood, welcome in their calling, welcome in their leadership without any label. They're a child of God, a sacred word that is called by God to serve God and God's people for mm. the expanse of God's kingdom, period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh boy. Mm. I want to ask an interesting question, and let's just see where it goes. It, it may, it may not land, but I'm just, I'm thinking about twenty-something Elise hmm. with her, with her baby boy walking into Jubilee. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, did that Elise have any idea that she would be sitting in probably the most historic general conference, we pray, the, the, the most historic? And, and what from there are you bringing into the bar of the conference? Mm. Never in my wildest dreams. So let me tell you. So in joining Jubilee, I never knew United Methodist anything. I joined mm -hmm. a faith community that welcomed my son and I in without judgment and shame. Because mm -hmm. every other faith community, when found out that I was unpartnered, had my baby out of wedlock, all the things, that was judgment and not welcome. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I joined that faith community and then found out about our Wesleyan heritage and our doctrine and our theology. 
So what I think about is those persons who are longing for a faith community that are that will welcome them. Mm. And so that's what I bring into the bar of general conference is I know what it feels like to be shamed and the Bible being used against the, the decision that I made. Mm. Mm. I know that to be true. And I don't mm. ever want anyone to ever feel that God doesn't love them simply because of the opinions of people. Ooh. I don't ever want anyone to feel that way. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Elise, do you have hope for the United Methodist Church going forward? <laughs> it depends on what day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are some days I'm like, oh, Jesus, really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. But then there are days in which I get to encounter um, local congregations that are becoming a safe haven for young people who are experiencing homelessness. And they have created wash spaces, both showers and laundry. So where these young people who are on the run and experiencing homelessness can find a safe place and a meal. And that in and of itself is the gospel message. Mm -hmm. I get the opportunity for those who English is not their primary language are worshiping together in their uh, language of their heart and being able to praise God without any persecution. And we as the United Methodist Church can be a midwife to that being taking place and happening across the world. And to be able to know the stories and the impacts and even our giving that has effect on people who don't even know that there is a small town in Indiana through their apportionment giving has created the impact um, for hope for that that's happening for them. So that's what brings me joy about being United Methodist. But some days I just wonder why in the world are we still here? <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Reverend Dr. Lee's Fulbright, I am so grateful for your story, your calling, your witness, your leadership, your wisdom, um, and all that you bring to us as a church. Um, we are so much better because there's a there's a place for you at the table to bring all of the gifts. <laughs> especially the accounting gift. Hallelujah. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for um, just sharing your story. Um, this was just powerful for me personally. Well, thank you for this platform and the opportunity to share. As I said, I've been fanning for you for a long time. And so for <laughs> the intersection of time and space where we are able to share in this is just truly God and God at work. And so I'm mm. grateful. I'm very, very Praise grateful. God. Praise God. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.